0: Today on Edge Effects.
1: Because I feel like the book isn't so much a complaint about temperature, but it is a complaint about how particular temperate ideals become normalized in the service of white comfort and eventual settlement.
0: Dr. Jen Rose Smith, Dahunyu Alaskan Native and Assistant Professor of Geography and American Indian Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, speaks with Dr. Hi'ile Julia Hobart, Kanaka Maoli and Assistant Professor of Native and Indigenous Studies at Yale. Dr. Hobart is also the author of Cooling the Tropics, Ice, Indigeneity, and Hawaiian Refreshment, which will be the topic of today's conversation.
2: Hi, thanks for being with us. I'm so happy to be here and have this opportunity to talk with you about your brand new book, Cooling the Tropics. I have it right here. Ice, (gasps) Indigeneity and Hawaiian Refreshment. I wish we were in the same room so you could sign it for me. I will sign it for you at some point. So, yeah, so it's been lovely to be reading your book, especially over the kind of winter time here in Wisconsin and getting these icy feelings, but you know, within the context of Hawaii. So, I wonder, you know, congratulations, first of all, on this incredible book. Like, big, big congratulations! Congratulations on the position at Yale. I'm just so excited for you. And I just to sort of get our conversation started, I wonder if you want to sort of just tell maybe you know, unfamiliar readers, unfamiliar listeners, a little bit about your book. You know, you're bringing together all of these super important critical themes and analyses and arguments together about the sensory the thermal coloniality and empire all as it's sort of being enacted and unfolding in the context of hawaii so do you have like some kind of like a little bit of what your experience has been like how does it feel now that the book's you know in hand it's out in the world what do you what are you thinking and feeling about your text
1: Well. As it was getting ready to go out in the world, I felt so much anxiety. I mean, not for any like good reason. I'm I'm really proud of the book, and I think it is a really nice reflection of who I am as a scholar and the kinds of things that I want to say about how I think about the world, but it was more just like even even academic texts and i think particularly in indigenous studies you put so much of you into them that it going out into the world felt very much like okay world you know, here i am here are like my innermost thoughts that i worked really hard on trying to work out and now you're going to read them and you'll come up with ideas about them too and like i hope I hope that people, I don't know, get what I'm trying to say. I hope I laid it out in a way that feels engaging and rich for them. I hope that I say a couple of things that maybe they haven't thought about directly before. And now that it's been out for a couple of months, a lot of that anxiety has fallen away to the point where I'm like, okay, yeah, you know, it's out and people are picking it up. And Um, saying nice things to me about it. So that kind of like helps a lot. But now I'm just excited about it. And I can't wait to talk to people about it. So for listeners that haven't had a chance to crack it open, I usually describe it as a social history of ice in the cold in Hawaii from the 19th century to the present day. It's really wide ranging and it's really interdisciplinary, which means that it takes the cold in a lot of pretty expansive directions. I think about natural cold at the summit of some of Hawaii's tallest mountains. I think about the early ice trade, freezing and refrigeration technology, forms of cold refreshment like ice cream and shave ice and cocktails. And I try to pull all of those things together to think about the thermal dimensions of indigenous dispossession. So beautifully put. Wonderful. Thank you for that.
2: That primer um to bring to bring us all in. And I mean, I sort of as a as an ice scholar myself, I kind of I get this question of like have you always been interested in ice? Um, how how did you come to see ice as sort of your one you know main central frame of analysis and I wonder if I could ask you that question as well in terms of how what was the sort of arrival point at ice was it something you found in the archive was it something that happened when you were you know in your homelands in Hawaii uh, what what was the sort of like aha moment?
1: Well there I think that for a lot of our projects, they have like two genealogies. There's like the intellectual genealogy of the project. And then there's like the really, that little nugget of like who you are as a person in the project. So the intellectual genealogy of the project was that I was writing a term paper as a graduate student and I was a PhD in a food studies program that had a very, very small doctoral cohort. And because it was so tiny, a lot of us kind of like took advantage of being in New York City uh, and being able to take classes in a lot of the other institutions. And I was supposed to be working on a project like some something really like ill defined about food and media and i kind of took this wild left turn and i was like oh i'm going to just take like a couple of classes for myself to work on some thoughts that i wanted to think through and i was like yeah i'm just going to take advantage of these resources and so i took a couple of classes in indigenous studies out of personal interest and wrote a term paper that looked at trade treaty negotiations between the United States and Hawaii in the 1870s. And I was like, this is going to be a pretty food-rich treaty because the U.S. was trying to find all of these ways to bolster sugar trade uh, with Hawaii at the time. And listed in the schedule of trade goods was ICE. And it really jumped out at me because I was like, well, that seems like a weird thing to be in there. And I didn't understand technologically why it was in there, politically why it was in there. So I started tugging on that thread. And that tiny thread eventually turned into a dissertation, which turned into a book. And I didn't really know. I mean, it took me years to figure out what, what kind of garment I was unraveling. <laughs> but eventually, I think I, I figured it out. And then by that time, you know, I was like, okay, this is, this is my project. This is going to be my work. The personal genealogy was that I've actually, like, even as a little girl, I just really hated being cold. Like I hated ice in my drinks. I hated jumping into cold water. I still won't get into cold swimming pool. Like I just wouldn't do it. And everybody would always be like, oh, it feels so good. It's so refreshing. I'm like, this feels terrible i don't like I don't like the way my body feels here, and as I got older i i mean i just i I always figured that was just like a weird sensory thing for me, but then once I started to get into this book, I was like, oh that's you know I guess eventually I would just grow up to like write a whole book complaining about <laughs> about the cold.'
2: I love that. That's hilarious. And I'm glad that, yeah, both of those, those sort of genealogies could meet in this text. I think it's a a perfect, a perfect meeting. Sort of building up something that you were saying about the cold and the questions of temperature and therm, like the thermal linking that with sort of histories and projects of dispossession in Hawaii, how, I don't think that that's a really sort of obvious way to analyze, you know, forms of dispossession. So in your thinking about ice, how did you come to, to find that as a, as a main piece of analysis and why is it so important to think about colonialism through questions of the thermal? Not a biased question at all, obviously, right?
1: (laughs) no. Well, and I I feel like for a lot of reasons, like our projects have a lot of kinship with each other, even though, right, I think we're thinking about temperature and you have, being from people of like very cold places and me being of people of very temperate places. It is It's not that, let me back up, because I feel like the book isn't so much a complaint about temperature, but it is a complaint about how, particular temperate ideals become normalized in the service of white comfort and eventual settlement. And so, you know, when I I first started thinking about cold refreshment, and I came out of a food studies program, like I said, so that was kind of the first place I went to in the project was different things that you consume in order to refresh yourself when you're feeling hot that have become super normalized in Hawaii. And um, one of the things that I kind of kept bumping up against when I would talk to people about the project in its early years was I kept being like, okay, you know, yeah, this thing happened in Hawaii and it's all fine, like that's all fine and good. But like, aren't you just completely ignoring the fact that it actually just feels really nice? to have ice cream and that shave ice is like delicious and cocktails are what you would want so you know I get you people would be like yeah the argument is fine but like there's something really natural about these desires and I think about that I thought about that a lot over the course of writing the book because I was like at like any point I think that like settler comfort starts to become naturalized. These imported practices become naturalized. It's just like obviously what we all do um, needs to be probed a little bit. And and so much of the project is about that, is kind of taking these norms that are both infrastructural and embodied and kind of pulling them apart and saying, well, okay, you know, when we, when we normalize these forms of pleasure and comfort, whose, whose comfort are we putting at the center here? And um, what does that say about the politics of these types of leisure performances?
2: Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think you, you definitely pinpointed that specific moment when anyone says, well, these are natural desires. Like, okay, well, let's take a step back and see why we actually believe that or why that's a sort of common understanding of, oh, this makes sense to everyone. This is a universal desire and need that comes from, you know, nowhere, so to speak. That makes a lot of sense to me. I think that you have this really, like, interesting and beautiful kind of, like, intellectual genealogy yourself of being a food studies scholar, being in native studies. In your book, you talk a lot about different kinds of foods and the way that they sort of become entangled and weaponized as different um, tools and projects of dispossession, racialization of empire. And you talk about poi, you talk about ice cream and ice and cocktails. Was there one food stuff that you found to be sort of like very compelling or one of your favorite sort of analyses of food from within the book.
1: There's a lot of ice cream in the book and I the ice cream stuff kind of spans, I think a couple of chapters and I found it to just be a really compelling food to think with because of its connection to whiteness. And there's just like this... Right, vanilla ice cream just keeps emerging again and again as like this object of purity and simplicity and innocence and sweetness that just gets attached right to white womanhood in Hawaii. And then as kind of like the civilizing food that starts to appear everywhere. And it appears on the streets of Honolulu, in schools, in the palace for entertainments. It's just like vanilla ice cream is the food that so much of these ideas just like map onto in really kind of like neat like neat ways not like fascinating, like it's just like such a perfect little mapping. And then it gets put up against all kinds of like Hawaiian foods, Hawaiian bodies.
2: Well, that was one of the very interesting things that I learned from that chapter actually was the sort of like butter content, like it has to meet a certain level of, like these foods have to meet a certain level of butter content in order for them to like, pass as civilized enough to be to like be widely distributed which was so interesting I just didn't know anything about that history
1: yeah a friend texted me the other day and they were like oh my god I'm reading your book right now and the ice cream police is just killing me <laughs> like, yeah That's um so totally uh, yeah a lot of that chapter focuses on the work of this one particular food inspector that gets this bee in his bonnet about ice cream. And he starts to enforce all of this legislation that basically uh, seeks to Americanize the foodscape in Hawaii through particular legal forms that think about whether or not foods have like particular contents in order to be like legally labeled as such. And Mm -hmm. what was really interesting about that was that, you know, nothing in Hawaii had actually really changed very much as it moved from the kingdom era into the territorial era. But the legal frameworks had changed because they're starting to be imported from the United States. And then you get, right, the emergence of these American bureaucrats that weaponize these foods, as you say towards this civilizing project, which is a lot more kind of amorphous in some sense as you know colonialism starts to unfold in Hawaii. Mm, yeah.
2: That makes so much sense. And how interesting these like m- mini facets of colonialism that hyper fixate on particular forms of indigenous living and livelihood, you know, and they're so effective, especially when they target things like food, which are a part of our everyday lives.
1: Yeah. And I think what was really interesting is that like you see these brief moments, like relatively, you know, 10 or 15 years of like intense focus on these like particular issues that then seem to just get like papered over and moved on with
2: mm-hmm.
1: right that i'm like i can't believe this was this wild thing was happening in hawaii at this particular time and then it just gets completely normalized and, you know, nobody nobody remembers this food inspector. I couldn't find him. I tried to find him in the archives afterwards or before or anywhere, and he just kind of disappeared, right? This bureaucrat that made, made a mark on Hawaii's foodscape, a really powerful mark that we kind of just, like, don't remember very well. Hmm. Well, now we can
2: remember because of your now mind. we can remember Edward Blanchard <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for that work yeah so one one thing I wanted to talk about a little bit was the way that you book and your manuscript with Mauna Kea and the 30 meter telescope. Um, You have it in the first chapter and then again at the end. And in very different ways, you, you bring in this analysis in very sort of expert, brilliant ways. And in the first part, you're introducing this sense of cold that Kanaka Maoli people feel that is sort of predates any kind of Western sense of cold that is brought in, you know, a foreign sense of cold that's brought into the islands. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about those sort of epistemologies of cold and why it's so important to to center them.
1: Yeah. So the stuff about Mauna Kea was not in the dissertation as I originally wrote it, and I added it to the book later. And I think it took me some time to figure out how the book should be framed. I knew, right, and I knew that as I was writing the book, that Native Hawaiian epistemologies and voices had to be really front and center for the book. But I don't think I, it took me some time to figure out exactly how they should be. But in the end, it made a lot of sense to bookend everything with Mauna Kea as a place where water most consistently freezes, as a place where we have snow, as a place where we've always kind of, as Native Hawaiians have thought about the elements and temperature extremes. Mm -hmm. And I realized as I was going through it that there was, Mauna Kea is really important to talk about because I think there's this impulse and there has been this impulse and I show it in the book through my archival research for hundreds of years that like Native Hawaiians don't belong in the cold, that it's always foreign to them, that -hmm. they don't have any ideas about it. That these spaces are empty and available for the taking, for use as a scientific research site, or astronomy, or exploration, or any of those kinds of things, and I wanted to push back very hard on those ideas, and and I it's a it's a small aside in the book, but I you know and I kept it in there. Maybe it reads as a little bit of a gripe, but through reading the book, people would always say, oh my gosh, your book reminds me of like the opening page of 100 Years of Solitude when they discover ice and it feels like this miraculous thing. And it's it's a perfectly fine and normal connection to make, except there's something about it that really irked me that there was this idea like, oh, look at these Native Hawaiians with this like Miraculous cold thing that comes to shore, and they're just like baffled and amazed. Mm -hmm. And I was like, No, wait a second. Like, we have highly elaborated ideas about the cold. We always have. Those stories are not gone, they're not forgotten. We talk about it all the time. And actually, some of these really cold spaces are at the center of movements in Native Hawaiian politics today. Like, it's actually really important. Mm -hmm. And to, like, to have these narratives that Hawaiians don't belong in those spaces, I think, actually shows a lot of the relevance of what I'm trying to work out about temperature and dispossession throughout the book, as it still is brought to bear on where Native Hawaiians are thought to be, right, which is very often relegated to the shores on the beach in the water Mm -hmm.
2: i think that what you you said just now and in your chapters you say something like you describe this process of ice being made natural to hawaii and foreign to hawaiians which is another way of basically putting what, what you're describing here and um so i'd love If you wanted to elaborate a little bit more on that, but also the way that you describe sort of like ice arriving to Hawaii as though, you know, Native Hawaiians had never conceived of such an element is really sort of seeing ice as you do through the book as a kind of Western form of technology, as this kind of like infrastructure, the structure of, you know, Western empire and colonialism being introduced. And so to see ice in that way, I think is so innovative and interesting. And I hope that you know how awesome that is.
1: (laughs) Well, I really had to figure out how to work it out, right? To to note right to insist on ice as being important and natural in Hawai'i and to native Hawaiians and also to point out what happens when it arrives as mm. a commodity, right? And I, and I feel like I had to balance that carefully in the kind of beginning of the book to show how normal it is for it to be in Hawaii, right? How we understand it um, really well, and also that it was a novel arrival, but it's ice-packaged it's ice as a commodity that I think starts to do a lot of different things than it had done previously.
2: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. this The particular sort of like, yeah, the technologies that ice is made to to fit and the way that it changes the landscape in particular ways like that.
1: Yeah. And it brings all kinds of different cultural values with it. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it's like the commoditization of ice as it becomes attached to whiteness and to cosmopolitanism, I think become some of the most important things.
2: One thing I wanted to follow up on something that you said previously was that it's not only these kind of epistemological orientations and relationships to ICE that Native Hawaiians have and continue to have, but it also is sort of entangled with more modern senses of modern in that like it's playing out on the ground right now of kind of like political sovereignty movements and things like that so i wonder if you can bring us into those moments about how you know ice and refrigeration and these things play out in 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 hawaii that it definitely comes up in your conclusion but i wonder if you wanted to say a little bit more
1: yeah so We talked a little bit about how the book started at Mauna Kea as a way of pushing back on these ideas that ice was just this like foreign novel thing to native Hawaiians. And over the course of writing the book, I was brought back to Mauna Kea. I think that I hadn't anticipated all of that action happening at the summit of Mauna Kea against the construction of the 30 meter telescope when I started writing the book. And it hadn't even been happening as I was drafting the chapter that is now the first chapter of the book about Hawaiian epistemologies about the cold in Mauna Kea when um, Pu'u o uh, gets established as the resistance encampment uh, at the base of the Mauna Kea access road. You know, every so many people, you know, went. It was like this magnetic exciting tumultuous and galvanizing moment in Native Hawaiian politics and I went there as a Native Hawaiian person and I went for as many days as I could but I had a really young baby in New York and so I kind of I went and I worked in the kitchen for as many days as I could manage and then I went home and I was like wow I just you know I just really had to be there uh, and it felt really important to be there. And it and it wasn't until many months later, as I was trying to figure out how to draft the conclusion of my book, that I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> you know, I went back to this place and thought about this place, and and that it really gave me a sense of conclusion to the project that I could not have foreseen when I started it. The other thing I think we really couldn't have foreseen was the global pandemic mm-hmm. and the way that our food system revealed itself to be so fragile. And, you know, of those months of not knowing what you're going to find at the grocery store, those months of all of your appliances breaking and not being able to get them ripped, like all of that precarity that kind of rushed to the surface of food politics. And those things together are woven into the conclusion of the book where I really was trying to think about, you know, after writing this history of ice and the cold and not fully, I think realizing the relevance of it for contemporary food politics or indigenous politics as they exist in Hawaii and then having these things kind of like converge spectacularly as i was finishing the book made me you know it it really was like okay i <laughs> i i get i get what the point is here And there were lots of times writing the book that I was like, what is the point? Or is it like, is this going to feel important to anybody? Is this going to feel relevant? On the other hand, I really worried at the time about writing a conclusion to the book that had the COVID pandemic in it. You know, is it going to, I don't know, is it going to feel, I don't No, I don't even know how to describe it. But there was something that when I was writing it, I was like, oh, I really don't want to have the pandemic be the end of my book.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I can definitely resonate with that feeling. Well, I think that the way that you ended it with Mauna Kea and those shots that you have, those images that you have of the coolers and the, the ingenious way that the kitchen there at the encampment made the processes to keep food cold, the way that you turn cold on its head then to be utilized in this particular way towards self-determination and sovereignty is a really powerful way to end the book.
1: Thanks. Like coming to center those coolers at the, at the camp felt really meaningful to me because i think that when you're writing about when you're writing about these things that have been so naturalized and normalized when you're writing about infrastructural elements of the world that like there's something about it that can be kind of overwhelming cuz you're like how can we start to undo things that we're not even very good at seeing And how can we start to undo things that we are profoundly embedded in? Like there's something that feels really impossible about the fix, right? I spend all of this time talking about the problem and not really knowing how to get to the fix since it feels really diffuse in a lot of ways. And that gave me something to hang on to that wasn't like all gloom and it also wasn't like These things are terrible and we have to never interact with them again. Right. No, no
2: cocktails for anyone. No ice cream. No
1: cocktail. No. (laughs) You will have to shop for your food daily. (laughs) No refrigerators, but to say, okay, you know, there are things that we can work with here. And just because they come out of these colonial histories doesn't mean that we can't leverage them towards our our own futures that center and celebrate us.
2: Mm,
1: exactly, so beautifully put.
2: Yes, there was one. There was one thing I wanted to, to ask you about throughout your text you and especially you use the the object I'm gonna say of the shave ice and the rainbow as a sort of emblematic understanding of how multiculturalism works in Hawaii and I found that to be so fascinating and so again just like masterfully rendered and I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about the sort of problematics of the idea of multiculturalism in Hawaii, and
1: how that intersects with things like shave ice and and ice generally. So, Hawaii becomes a U.S. state in 1959. And in the 1960s and 70s and 80s in Hawaii, you see the emergence of these really important discourses about Hawaii as like the multicultural or multi-ethnic melting pot that gets really celebrated as what Hawaii could offer the United States, right, in terms of like envisioning a post-racial society. Some scholars have thought about the way that these discourses served to center Hawaii's local community. These are usually folks that have had families in Hawaii for many, many generations that were brought over to work in the sugarcane plantations and the pineapple plantations, and have come to see Hawaii as home. And a lot of Native Hawaiian people are also multiracial or multiethnic and would categorize themselves also as local. I I guess what, yeah, what I was really interested in talking
2: to you about is I think part in what happens, I mean, especially sort of in my own experience, living in Alaska, one of the main places that folks go for vacation is Hawaii. And one is the sort of like, you know, proximity between a lot. I mean, proximity rates a six hour flight, but still, um, it's sort of like seen in these particular ways, I think by Alaskans generally, but you know, more broadly as this sort of like space of tourism. And you critique that in the book and many you know native hawaiian scholars have done that too have shown that hawaii is understood as this kind of militaristic space in in sort of like the american understanding but what what sort of becomes so like I'm going to use maybe a comestible word, like edible about Hawaii is this like aloha spirit, right? That like, oh, it's this multicultural spot. It's this sort of melting spot, as you put it. Everyone's happy to have us there. We should be visiting there. It's a tourist destination. And I just love how in the book, you really push against those understandings that we need to think about Hawaii, not as just this kind of melting, melting pot place, but actually this is a this is indigenous land this is where indigenous folks live and have lived and continue to practice particular forms of sovereignty and i think that's a really important perspective to learn from from this text
1: yeah the shave Ice, the shave Ice chapter was the last piece of the book that i wrote and i really resisted it for a long time um and, and people would ask, they'd be like, okay, so what about shave ice? And mm-hmm. I'd kind of be like, oh, I don't really think that's my interest. Um, and a lot of my resistance was the way that shave ice has served to emblematize Hawaii's local population, which is heavily Asian American, and, and the celebration of Americanism and US statehood that kind of happens with the political and economic ascendancy of Asian American communities in Hawaii. Mm -hmm. And that really wasn't my interest. I wanted to write a book about native Hawaiians. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to end my book on something that like, that allowed native Hawaiian people and politics to slip out of view. And when I, when I started to like, not be able to avoid writing about shave ice anymore and I kind of came around to the fact that I had to you know do something with it the thing that I think finally like got me over that resistance was to make that connection between shave ice and the rainbow as this really specific aesthetic that gets attached to Hawaii post-statehood right that the multi-ethnic rainbow comes to symbolize Hawaii. It gets celebrated in this edible form and it's just like, it's absolutely beautiful in its encapsulation of these ideas of refreshment, comfort, warmth, aloha, uh, racial harmony. Mm. And rainbows just, I mean, they explode everywhere across the landscape of Hawaii Um, But particularly in the form of shave ice, which I think it's, you know, it's symbolism becomes like ever more potent into the present day, where like everybody, it's delicious, everybody loves it. And it's also made up of two very simple ingredients, ice and sugar, which Mm -hmm. to me are these two ingredients that I think the colonial and imperial history of Native Hawaiian dispossession in Hawaii can be traced really effectively. Yes And for me, I just I wanted to really lean into that and try to pull back the layers mm, which you've done so well. Um, it was very
2: beautifully put and I think that I think that you've achieved that like you've written a book about, Native Hawai'i and Native Hawai'ians, while also, you know, bring together these really major, you know, analytics of racial capitalism, settler colonialism, and empire. So you've managed to do all of that in one book, and it's very spectacular.
1: Thank you. It is, I feel, I feel so, um, I don't know, like this, this book was such a Like, I feel like there just wasn't anything obvious about this book as I was writing it. And I think that it's really hard to write any book, but each book has its own hard thing about it. For me, that hard thing was like compiling my evidence, which for something that now feels so obviously true to me, right that ideas about temperature have come to articulate the ways that hawaii exists in the american imaginary was really it was really difficult to find my archive and to put together my archive there was mm-hmm. something about it that like people weren't really talking about it because it wasn't in the cities and it wasn't around in the 1800s. And then all of a sudden it was like everywhere. And it was so everywhere that nobody was really thinking about it or talking about it. So I had to search for all of these tiny little blips and moments that I could then piece together. And that felt so painstaking. (laughs) But then, you know, when I did it at the end, I was like, Oh, okay. Like, I think that I have shown I've shown to be true, this thing that I'm trying to argue by pulling it from the background up to the surface of the story.
2: Hmm. Yes, yeah, that's
1: so accurate, so correct, so true. And
2: thank you for writing that, thank you for doing it. We are sort of around the 45 minute mark, so there's just sort of a couple more questions I wanna ask you, and one is that, um, it sounds like the kind of process of amassing your evidence, amassing the, especially the archival information, I think this book is so historical, you've done so much incredible work in the archives here, and the span of time that you're covering so like rigorously and robustly is really impressive. What was what were some of the moments in in the archives that felt exciting or or fun? I think that often, you know, archive arch- archival work can be very violent and very hard and challenging. And so, I like to ask, like, are there moments where that it felt good? You know, were there things
1: that you found, um, there, experiences that you had that you enjoyed? I love that question, and the, the archival archival work is. I, you know, like it's, it's a really funny kind of work because it's super exciting and it's incredibly dull and it's really emotional. Mm-hmm. And it's also just like drudgery. Um, <laughs> yes. I don't think that I will ever not do archival work. It's just like, it's something that is in my bones being there in the archive, but it just, like, there are so few, like, glory moments mm-hmm. in the archives, even though at the end, you know, you've done all of the work and you start to be able to conceptualize, you know, the shape of a history of a place. There were fun parts to the archive, just, like, little bits and bobs that, you know, emerge. Like, there, I found a note from uh, King Kalakawa, who was our... our a really important um, sovereign, and he had um, ordered a bunch of cats to be imported to Hawaii because folks had brought in like there was like a big rat infestation in the plantations, and his solution was like he was like, "Well, we got to get some cats." Being a cat <laughs> lover, I was like, "Yeah, <laughs> that's a very good solution." I found. You know, documentation from um, the Hansen's Disease Colony in Kalaupapa, which is an incredibly painful place, pooling their money and sending funds for the relief of Native American communities on the Mm -hmm. continent as they were suffering from things. And these Mm -hmm. moments of like giving when there's very little to give and solidarity expressed with communities abroad is really beautiful.
0: Mm -hmm. I cried
1: a lot. At that moment, finding Edward Blanchard, my food inspector, was a really fun chase uh, to see what he was getting up to and how he was uh, doing all kinds of problematic things in the enforcement of food laws in Hawaii. There was one lovely archivist, an unknown and unnamed archivist, it at the Hawaii State Archives who at one point um, took it upon themselves to assemble an ice cream file and just threw a whole bunch of things under the keyword of ice cream, leaving (laughs) it there for me to find, you know, 50 years later at a point where I was like, I'm never going to find what I'm looking for. And then it was just like ice cream. And twenty items that just like helped me trace it. Incredible. Yeah, archivist past are just gifts to current day researchers. Mm, absolutely.
2: Uh, those those are really lovely moments. Thank you for sharing those. Um, I wonder, just as a, a couple of sort of ending questions. One, I'd love to hear if you have sort of like for a reader reading the book, what are some of like the major things that you want them to be able to finish the book cover to cover, cover to beautiful cover, and now take away. And, and then second, you know, this, this is also something we could maybe, you know, email about or include in, in the written up version of our interview. But um, if you want to sort of bring up any organizations that readers can either donate to, learn more about, are there texts that you want to, you know, make sure that unfamiliar but interested readers and listeners can become familiar with, things like that, I'd love to, to hear those things from you.
1: What I will be happy to include in the podcast interview was there. there's something I've thought a lot about in writing this book, um, which is that, you know, the vast majority of this work was done while I was away from home. Mm. And I've thought a lot about what the relationship is between, like, me and Hawaii, like, as a researcher. And the fact that because of my employment and because of my family obligations as a parent, I just don't get to be in Hawaii the way that I want to be. And I don't know when I'll get to be in Hawaii the way that I want to be. And there are folks that are doing really important, grounded, community oriented work that. I think should be you know the loudest and most important voices that we look to and that we think about when we think about native Hawaiian politics Mm. and I had to work really hard to be okay with figuring out my piece right of what I can offer being a native Hawaiian who you know frankly I haven't lived in Hawaii for maybe 15 20 years at this point And there's just, you know, there's so much that I have come to know from my work in the archives, but there's so much that I don't know about what happens on the ground. Right. And I can know it from afar. I can read Twitter and I can read blog posts and I can read the news and all of that stuff, but not being there on the ground, I think, yeah, it's had to be something I've, I've, It's something that I've had to learn how to be okay with, but it's also something that I want to be really mindful of when I think about how my voice is used or like how I use my voice to speak about Native Hawaiian politics, because there's a lot that I just, I should not be the authority on. Hmm. Yeah, I
2: definitely understand that. That completely resonates. Thanks for saying that. That's an important, yeah, politic to embody, I think. Thank you for for modeling that
1: for us. Well, yeah, I mean, I just think it's really, yeah, you know, it's really weird to be in academia and like have, you know, put your voice out there and write your things and then have people like ask you about like Native Hawaiian political sovereignty. And I'm like, I just, I'm not the person doing the on the ground work. Mm hmm. And I, and I won't pontificate, you know, on what the details of that work are. Mm-hmm. I wish that I could be there all of the time, but that's just not in the cards for me. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Totally get it. Totally get it. Well, I wonder on the question of the sort of the feelings and ideas that you want readers to be left with after finishing your book? Is there anything, a standout, a few standout ideas that you want to make sure come through?
1: One of the things that I really try to focus on in the book are the things that we take for granted as part of our everyday lives, Mm -hmm. which are actually a product of, you know, 200 years of imperialism and settler colonialism in Hawaii. And to really try to get us to pay attention to, like, things that have just become so normalized that we don't pay attention to them anymore. So things Mm -hmm. like refreshment, things like refrigeration, and to just take a moment and say, okay, like, what about this has been produced for me? What about this do I take for granted And how is that taken for grantedness, shaping the way that I understand my relationship to this place?
2: Mm. Yes, absolutely. Mm. Well, as someone who has just read
1: the book cover to cover, I feel like that's definitely a takeaway for me. One of the things that I think also helps is that it's actually a really short book. (laughs) Um, It looks like a normal book, but there's just so many footnotes that, like, when you actually flip through it, you're like, oh, this actually, this is a pretty manageable length. (laughs) Um, And so you can kind of, like, whip through that history pretty quickly. It's very readable. If you feel like it. Very, very beautiful.
2: <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you for sharing your your knowledge and your brilliance with, with all of us. We really appreciate it.
1: Thanks, Jen.
0: That was Jen Rose Smith in conversation with Hiale Hobart. Jen is an Assistant Professor of Geography and American Indian Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Hile is an Assistant Professor of Native and Indigenous Studies at Yale University, and also the author of Cooling the Tropics, Ice, Indigeneity, and Hawaiian Refreshment. You've been listening to EdgeFX, a production of CHE, the Center for Culture, History, and Environment in the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This episode was produced by Weishun Liu and me, Rudy Molinick. The music you're hearing is by Julian Lynch. You can get all of our episodes sent straight to your computer or mobile device by subscribing to EdgeFX wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review, or tell a friend about it. That really helps connect us with new listeners. You can follow us on Twitter at EdgeFXMag or find us online at edgefx.net.